Your brother Richard is a missionary in Chad. That's in Africa, about square in the middle of the continent. Along with his wife and two kids, he was recently kidnapped by radical Muslims. He's being held for ransom. And surprisingly, the captors have been gracious enough to allow one letter to come from the family. The family has chosen you to write the letter. The question I pose to you is, how would you begin? In those first initial words to your kidnapped missionary brother, how would you begin to try to comfort and bring peace? Here are some possibilities. Dear Richard, I am so sorry this happened to you. I'm just heartbroken. I can't believe it. And you go on to seek to empathize. Or here's another possibility. Dear Richard, rest assured, our church and many others are writing our congressmen, our state representatives, our senators, and we are going to bring all of the power of Uncle Sam down on those evil captors. You just hang in there because we're going to do something about this. Or here's another. Dear Richard, you need to know that we are doing everything in our power to raise the money for this ransom. In the meantime, we are praying for you and your family every day. None of those are necessarily wrong or hard to understand or hard to comprehend. But I believe the Apostle Peter would take a different angle on such a letter. The Apostle Peter actually got one shot himself to write to suffering Christians, to write to scattered, persecuted Christians. Now, I know there's a second Peter in our Bible, but it's a whole different focus. He got one shot under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write just such a letter to a suffering saint, suffering because they are following Christ. And he would have taken quite a different angle than those three options. His readers in 1 Peter are beginning to suffer more and more persecution. It's the days of the emperor Nero, right about in the middle of his reign of terror. Nero in Greek, by the way, means not good, okay? <laughs> That's just a joke, but Nero was not... <laughs> some of y'all are like really believing me there. Nero was not good for anyone, Christian or, or not. And as Peter writes to these scattered throughout Asia Minor, he takes quite a different approach. We will see it this morning in verses 1 and 2, if you'll turn with me in the great little letter of First Peter. It has five chapters. He says at the end of the book that it's a brief letter. And we begin this morning with his greetings to these recipients of this letter. My title is Elect Exiles gather here. I want to give you a literal translation, my own translation of verses 1 and 2. I, I, I love the New American Standard, but it, it kind of uh, messes up a little bit, in my opinion, here in these first two verses, and you'll see that as I give you my literal translation. And then it's going to be a little bit hard to follow at first, and then I'll come back and, and add a little comment to it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to elect exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to foreknowledge of God the Father, by sanctifying of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The very first thing he says, or the very first thing he calls them, right after he gives the briefest of introductions of himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, a sent one of Jesus Christ with his authority, delegated from the very head of the church, the very next words are two elect exiles. And then he speaks about where they are, and then he comes back to that issue of elect exiles. And he says they are elect exiles according to, they are elect exiles by... And they are elect exiles unto or for the purpose of. And that gives us our outline this morning. We'll get to that in a few more moments. Peter then begins this letter, this letter of comfort, this letter of challenge by reminding his readers of their election. He begins this very practical, very helpful epistle with the doctrine of election. More specifically, that they are God-chosen rejects of this world. And therein lies the, the irony of the believer. We are hated and rejected and outcasts of a world system under the judgment of God, but we are chosen and precious and select in His eyes. Peter writes to God-chosen rejects. They are elect exiles, then they are select sojourners. On the one hand, they are exiles dispersed throughout Asia Minor. He mentions several of the regions that make up most of this area. It's modern-day Turkey. It's a huge country, relatively speaking, that part of the world, 303,000 square miles. For those keeping count, that's 35,000 square miles larger than the state of Texas. And so you can imagine, yes, they are scattered. Yes, they are dispersed. This is a lot of territory that is mentioned. But on the other hand, they're not just exiles. On the other hand, they're chosen by God from all eternity. But even though they are foreknown by God, even though they are elect exiles, they are still exiles and they are still in the need of the moment. It may be great to be elected from all eternity, but I need help right now, God, (laughs) I need help today, God. And if we were to scan the rest of the letter, we'd learn this about these recipients. They are being mocked for being Christians. They are enduring fiery trials, chapter 4. They are enduring various trials, chapter 1. Distressed, he says. Distressed by various trials. We learn about them that they're, lo and behold, just like us, they're still battling sin. They're still battling lust of the flesh. Trials haven't completely purified them yet. We learn that they're suffering for the sake of righteousness. We learn about their lives that it will get worse before it gets better. And so to comfort scattered exiles, to comfort suffering saints there and everywhere, Peter gives us these these three central truths, three central truths regarding our status as elect exiles. Now I want to stress this. They are not just elect and they are not just exiles. Those two things have got to come together in our minds this morning. Peter puts equal emphasis on those two designations. They are just sitting there side by side, weighted equally. They are select sojourners then. 
Well, let's look at these three central truths and see if we too can be comforted for maybe the persecution we're enduring now, maybe the mocking, maybe the ridicule or being ostracized or losing friends. Maybe you've lost a job because you follow Christ. If you're not suffering now, you probably will be eventually. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And just kind of, you know, get, get your head up and look around. I mean, it actually is already happening. and We don't have to go to third world countries. We don't have to look outside our borders. It's already happening in our country. And we know that. We know those stories. It's all through the news. And so we look for comfort then and we look for help from even, even this inspired greeting. The first truth that we need to see then is our election is grounded in the Father's foreknowledge. Peter says, So those who reside as aliens or elect exiles, according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, if you're going to study the Bible, you've got to study prepositions. You've got to look at these things carefully. And here's what he says, according to or based upon. I like the phrase grounded in. Our election, then, is grounded in God knowing us in advance. Now, we're not going to take time to do an exhaustive word study of the word foreknowledge. I've done that before. I can share that with you if you are interested. But I can tell you this. If you look throughout all of the scriptures, when you consider the word foreknowledge in regards to people, not events, not events, but people, then what we're actually talking about is loving in advance, for loving, for God to know someone or even for a human being to intimately know someone. It is a euphemism or another way of saying to love someone when a person is involved. So what Peter is really indicating is that this election is grounded in God's loving us in advance of our existence. It is then to be foreloved. The closest cross-reference in the Bible to this word in this context is Romans 8.29, if you want to look at it with me. This is the closest way of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Romans 8.29. In a context of the love of God, in a context of salvation... In words written to believers, as Paul unpacks the gospel and all of its implications, he says in verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, that's believers, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. We saw in our scripture reading this morning, Paul also used that word predestined in Ephesians 1, and he says, in love, in love, he predestined. And so we bring all of those things together. For God to foreknow someone is for God to set his love upon them in advance. And this is exactly what Paul meant in Romans 9 when he said of God, Jacob, I have what? Loved. Before Jacob was ever born, before Jacob ever existed, before Jacob ever did good or bad, 
Before Jacob could ever have any merit whatsoever before me or demerit before me, Jacob, I have loved, God says. I have set my affections upon him even in eternity past. I like to follow Friends of Israel Ministry, and they have a wonderful magazine. Uh, David Levi is a writer for that magazine, and he said this about 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Election refers to the sovereign act of God, whereby he unconditionally chooses or chose men and women for himself. God's unconditional choice was not based on any merit within the individuals, but was according to his grace and the good pleasure of his will, end quote. Now, Peter is Jewish, obviously. He's writing to, I believe, both Jews and Gentile Christians who are scattered. I don't know that we can know for certain, the demographics of these churches or these gatherings, whether they were predominantly Jewish or predominantly Gentile, but I would, I would think that they include both. And so as he talks about God's foreknowledge, he's going to have something in the back of his mind, and that's going to be his own nation, his own people. And that takes us back to what I think is the foundation of this very doctrine of Deuteronomy chapter 7. So let's go look at that for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. Now we have Moses writing to exiles, right? Those who have left Egypt, who are on the way to the promised land. In Deuteronomy, he gives them what's called the second law. And look at these words in Deuteronomy 7, 7. Again, we're looking at how our election is grounded in the Father's foreknowledge. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. It wasn't because you were big and strong and mighty and beautiful and worthy of such a thing. In fact, for you were the fewest, you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you... (laughs) We never really get the reason, do we? The Lord set his love on you because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. That would be Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. He kept that covenant. He kept that oath that he made unconditionally with Abraham. Setting his love upon him. Calling him out. Making him an exile. Bringing him into a better place and a better position. And that's what the Lord had done for Israel. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. The Lord redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God. Implied, you are not. (laughs) He is God. He is the one who is redeemed. He is the one who has set His love. He loved us first, the Apostle John would say. Know this, Moses is saying. Understand this. He is God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. 
Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. <laughs> that, that, in a way, beloved, is the book of 1 Peter in a nutshell. God has done this through Jesus Christ, and now we are to live as a result in a certain way, a life of obedience, a life that is a response to God's love for us. So our election then is grounded in or according to the Father's foreknowledge. I'm arguing that that foreknowledge is not just knowing that we would exist or not just looking down the corridors of time and seeing us. That's a given. That's a granted. God is omniscient. I'm arguing that that foreknowledge is really God's love for us in particular. So think of it this way. Our bedrock of our Christian life, the foundation of our Christian life, is built upon and lived out in this. We are fundamentally exiles in this world. We've got to get that ingrained in it. We are sojourners, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are outcasts, we don't belong, we don't fit in. That is fundamental of who we are. We are exiles. We are rejects of this world. But we are chosen by God. And if, and if every believer can just get those two truths settled in their hearts and settled in their minds, that will take you a long way through suffering, through trials, through problems. Okay, on the one hand, we're saying, I'm in the world. What do I expect here, right? I'm a sojourner. On the other hand, I'm reminded, God has set his love on me, on me? Are you kidding? Knowing even my sin in advance, he still set his love on me for all eternity. As Paul said in Ephesians 1, in love, in love, he predestined us. So as I get up each day, I need to remind myself, look, I am hated by the world, but I am loved by God. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, I'm walking in the shoes of Jesus, right? Hated by the world, loved by God. That is our grounding, that is our foundation, that is the according to but how did this elect exile identity come to be known? Or to ask it another way, how do we experience this decision by God? It was something God did before we even existed, but how does that get into our time and space history? How do we see it? How do we understand it? How do we believe in it? How do we experience it? Or, or to just ask it simply, how do we come to know and believe that God loves us? Okay, how does that happen? That brings us to the second crucial truth. Our election is applied by the Spirit's power. Our election is applied by the Spirit's power. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So we move now from the basis of being elect exiles to the what? means to the means okay let me let me maybe illustrate it suppose you're a home builder and you have a dream or you have a plan or you have a desire to be the premier custom luxury home builder in the hill country that is your plan that is your according to that is your grounded in okay and your target your specific goal in mind is you want to build three one million dollar homes per year in the hill country. And so I've got my, my plan, I've got my target, 
Now, everything in between plan and accomplishing that goal is the means. The means to the end. So in that illustration, the means involves the work, right? The means involves the expending and exercise of energy or power. The means involves carrying out the plans. You've got the blueprint. Now I've got to look at the blueprint, look at precisely what it's asking for, and then go carry it out with my hands, if you will. In other words, the means here is cutting the boards. The means is driving the nails. The means is spreading the paint. All right, let's bring it back to the passage. What is the plan? What is the dream, if you will? It is that God would have a a people, an elect people, exiles in this world for a season. What is the means of carrying that out? It is the sanctifying or the setting apart work or energy or activity of the Holy Spirit of God. Not man. Not man. Okay, let me say it this way. We wouldn't be exiles apart from the work of the Spirit. <laughs> we would still be right at home here. We would, we would still be in love with this world. It is the work of the Spirit that makes us come out of the world. Think of it this way. If the Spirit is seen as wind in Scripture, and He is, He has blown us out of the world and into an exile status. If the Spirit is seen as the hand of God in action, He has jerked us out of our love affair with vanity fair and a world that is under the judgment of God. It is the work of the Spirit then, the sanctifying work of the Spirit that made us strangers, that made us aliens, that made us exiles in this foreign land. It's what made this land foreign. (laughs) Are you with me? It's why we all of a sudden step back and we say, oh my, I never saw the world like this before. It's corrupt. It has no ultimate satisfaction. Jesus put it this way in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Peter will later in the same chapter tell us that that Spirit takes up something to do this work. He takes up what he calls the seed of the Word of God. And that's how we're born again. We'll see that later in chapter 1. Okay, so we now have the basis of being elect exiles for knowledge of God the Father. We now have the means by which this comes about, the, the powerful, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But what is the goal? You know, in my illustration, the goal was three homes per year. What is the purpose of this? What is the aim? And and so Peter goes on and he gives it to us. In fact, there are two targets that God has in mind. God has an end game when he set his love on people. God had an end game when he sent the Holy Spirit to blow us out of love affair with the world. Look at it with me in verse 2. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, literally unto, ace in Greek, unto, literally it reads this way, to obey, to obey and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is then the two targets that God had in mind. 
all along from eternity past. One is active, the other is passive. Peter's order is a little different than we would expect. He's not really worried about order here, is he? He put the spirit out of order in my book. You know, I would have said father, son, spirit. <laughs> he said father, spirit, son. He's not really worried about order. I would have put sprinkle with the blood first and then obey. He puts obey first, sprinkle with the blood second. In this case, the second one causes the first one. You with me? The first one is active. It's what we do, obedience. We are called to obedience as Christians. The second is passive, to be sprinkled with something. Peter's actually alluding back to those children of Israel coming out of the desert. When Moses read them the covenant, the old covenant, and he said, will you obey? And they said, we will obey. And he sprinkled blood on them. It was the blood of the old covenant. It was a sign of their commitment to seek to obey it. Now Peter is saying, I'm leaning on that for you new covenant believers who have also made a commitment of faith, and yet now it's not by works at all, is it? But there is this commitment of faith. We are now participants in the new covenant, and so he speaks of the sprinkling of a new blood, a different blood. So we begin with the first purpose then, which he'll make a big deal of this whole book. We have been foreknown and we have been sanctified by the Spirit to obey, to follow, to take the book, see what it says, and then go do it. To be doers of the word, not hearers only. To be Christians in truth and in action, not in word and tongue only. This is so critical that we grasp this. Listen, we are not chosen to be frozen. We are not chosen by God to be a block of ice with no heart for God. We are not elect to be elite. We are not predestined to be prima donnas. We are chosen, elect, and predestined to be holy and blameless before God in a life of obedience. If we don't have a growing life of obedience, we don't have a clue about the sovereignty of God in salvation. We just think we do. We're just leaning on something we shouldn't be leaning on at that point. No, we were loved in eternity, and we were set apart in time, in our space and time history, that we might follow Christ every day and, and experience the cleansing for all of our sin when we don't perfectly follow Christ every day. This is why the Father chooses, and this is why the Spirit blows where He wishes. Now, when pilgrims and exiles and strangers are far from home, and we are, when we are longing for heaven in the midst of fiery trials, when we are passing through a world where we don't fit in, and when we are still battling our own sin, here's what we need to be reminded of, according to Peter. You and I are blood-bought outcasts. We are adored aliens. We are select strangers. God has lovingly set apart and God has lovingly set us on a path to paradise. You and I are looking for something that this world cannot provide. We are longing for a better country. We are longing for heavenly Jerusalem, for a heavenly city whose foundation and maker is God. That's the longing heart of every believer. 
In the meantime, we are called to a life of obedience. Now, that's pretty deep stuff, don't you think? I think that's pretty deep, but it actually is deeper than that. Will you look at the passage with me one more time? I have alluded to this already. We are elected or foreknown by whom? By the Father. We are redeemed by the blood of whom? Jesus Christ. And this is all applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? Do you see how deep this really is? Peter is alluding here to the design of salvation, to the unity of salvation among the members of the Trinity. Peter wants us to look back at the divine intent, the divine intent that those the Father chooses will be set apart by the Spirit as the Spirit applies the benefits of Christ's death to the elect. There is a plan, a cohesive plan, a, a, a unified plan Father and Son and Spirit are working in concert, not in cross-purposes. They are working together harmoniously toward this end. So Peter's comfort to his readers and to us is this. The entire Trinity has undertaken for our eternal benefit. What a way to start a letter to suffering saints. The triune God in eternity past undertook to your eternal blessing and benefit. And He, because He does this by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is infinite power, will not be thwarted in His purposes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit then work in concert to solve our greatest problem, which is sin, and set us on a path to heaven and sustain us until we arrive there. I like to think of it like a trio. The Trinity is this trio singing this most comforting song you have ever heard in your life. And they all have their own parts in the song, and yet they sing in perfect harmony with one another. And it just comes to us with these words of sustaining life. And it is this very song sung to the believer as if surrounded by the trio of the Trinity. It is this song that sustains us to the end. The song keeps us going along. The song of foreknowledge, sanctifying spirit cleansing blood of Jesus. Believer, do you feel scattered this morning? Do you feel like you don't fit in? Is the world losing its appeal? I'd say, oh, then that's good. (laughs) Then praise the Lord. But are you suffering fiery trials, distressed by multicolored trials? Let me remind all of us this morning that you are not home, but you are his. The Father chose you because He loved you in advance despite all of your sins. The Son shed His blood that you might be sprinkled clean, forgiven, washed. The Spirit of God set you apart from the world headed for judgment. And if He had not done that, you'd still be running with Him. Now, if meditation here, if meditation here 
does, I don't mean it's things going to be instant. You know, I mean, you got to go home with this. You got to sit before God with this. You got to pray through this and pray over this and meditate and think deeply on this for not five minutes or ten minutes, but maybe thirty or maybe an hour. And if meditation there doesn't bring our hearts comfort, then I don't know what will. I don't think there is anything that can. I want to close with two final thoughts on this target of obedience. I want to highlight that for a moment. Let's, let's bring that one off the page a bit because this is a big deal for Peter. It is a big theme throughout this letter. He will constantly be exhorting and commanding and encouraging and calling us to live a certain kind of life as pilgrims in a foreign land. And so I want to just close with two thoughts that come right from this text. Number one, obedience is what marks pilgrims in this world. Okay, nobody has a big E stamped on their forehead. Elect, you know. The Spirit's work doesn't result in this halo over our heads. I can't look out there and see any halos this morning. It's not patently obvious as we interact with people if their sins are under the blood of Jesus or not. So how do we know who the pilgrims are, who the exiles are? It's those who obey the Lord's word. Obedience is the revealer. Obedience is the mark. It's not how we're saved. Okay, let's not get confused. It's not how we get to heaven. It's the mark that God has done his work in our hearts. It is the life of obedience and only the life of obedience that shows the exile to be an exile and a pilgrim to be a pilgrim. Turn over to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me just show you this briefly. It's coming in our study of this letter. In verse 11, beloved. Beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among those outside the body of Christ, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is how you make your mark. This is how you show yourself to be what you are, an alien and a stranger. The second thing I want to draw to your attention about this obedience is this. Obeying God, active, and being cleansed of our sins, passive, are linked. These are linked chain links that cannot be broken. There is no true obedience to God apart from cleansing of sin. That's why I said the second, in fact, leads to the first. Can we be legalistic and Pharisees apart from cleansing of sin? Oh, sure. Can we walk around in pride and self-righteousness thinking we're conforming to all of the will of God? Oh, sure. Can we adopt a list of man-made religious traditions this long and go do all of them zealously? Oh, sure, no problem. But can you obey God from the heart? Can you obey in faith? Can you obey to the glory of God and not yourself apart from being cleansed of your sins, never. It'll never 
happen. Some of you may be trying that in here this morning. Some of you may be trying to earn God's favor, walking in self-righteousness instead of Jesus' righteousness that he gives as a gift, a pure gift, only a gift. You have lost sight of the fact that we must be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That means faith in the one who died for us on the cross. Little Emmeline said it perfectly. Repenting of sin and desiring to follow Christ. Forgiveness, beloved, is what gives us the want to. We're going to run out of steam. We're going to run out of motivation if there's not this deep, abiding gratitude to God for taking away all of my sins, even the ones I haven't committed yet. Jesus said this when a very sinful woman was crying over his feet and drying them with her hair. And the self-righteous Pharisees wanted him to rebuke her. And he brought the lesson home to them with these words. He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. She was forgiven much. She loves much. Luke seven forty seven. Paul wrote in the great gospel of the book of Romans. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, it is the kindness of God It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. So there is a link then between obeying God and being cleansed of our sins. I'll say it this way. All obedience in the Christian life must be rooted in the gospel and not in the law. All of our obedience is grounded in grace and not legalism. You are not under the law. You are not under the law. You are free in Jesus Christ. And it is that freedom that gives us the want to when it comes to obedience. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things edify. So what have we learned? We've learned three central truths that comfort scattered exiles. Number one, we're elect exiles based on the Father's forever love. Number two, we're elect exiles because the Spirit moved in our life and set us apart from this world. And number three, we're elect exiles for the twin purposes of obeying God and being cleansed of all of our sins. Dear Richard, like Jesus... You are a select sojourner in a hostile world. God loves you and always has. His Spirit has set you apart from a world headed for judgment, and Jesus' blood covers your sins. Your life reflects God's purpose of obedience. Now may God's grace and unmerited favor And may the peace which follows grace and unmerited favor, may it be exponentially multiplied in your life. Amen. Let's stand together as we prepare to...